This is episode 86 of Alohomora for May 31st, 2014. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Noah Freed, and I'd like to introduce our special guest, Sue Smith. I met Sue at MistyCon. Actually, we all did. And then Sue really wanted to buy me a butterbeer, and I let her, and then I bought Sue a butterbeer. My first one. <laughs> now, Sue, did, did you drive all the way to MistyCon to see us? Uh, actually, I did. True story. Well, that was sweet of you. Well, it was – I had literally never had – a conversation about Harry Potter with anybody and I had been listening to your show for a while and I really I was just inspired and New Hampshire is beautiful it's you know just the next state up and so I drove up by myself and fangirled my way into meeting you guys and I have to say for the all the fans you guys are as nice in person as you are on the show I have to say <laughs> you're too you're too nice thank you <laughs> it was a great time and I'm really just absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for having me. What uh, what house are you? I am Ravenclaw. All right. Cool. I know. Welcome. <laughs> I feel like we haven't had a Gryffindor guest in a very long time, and <laughs> I don't know why this is. It's because you haven't been around, Caleb. I haven't been around. I don't know. Were you, were, how, I was on was just I? a couple of episodes ago. Oh, okay. Well, maybe that's it. I don't know. I mean, like, even on episodes (laughs) that I have, I feel like almost all of our guests are uh, Ravenclaws or Hufflepuffs. Yeah. Yeah, Slytherin last week. We did. Slytherin last week, right. We have a Slytherin, but we haven't had a Gryffindor guest. I'm a little sad, so... Well, coming up soon, hopefully, maybe. Right. We'll see. But we are glad that you are here soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's my favorite chapter. Well, one of them. Yes, and this chapter is The Woes of Mrs. Weasley. Um... If you haven't read this chapter, listeners, you should because you will really enjoy the show a little bit more if you've read the chapter before because you have uh, your own notes to sort of play off of as we talk about it. So go ahead and do that. And we wanted to let everybody know that today's Alohomore is brought to you by Harry's. Please visit harrys.com and use the promo code OPEN to save $5 off of your first purchase. So before we start talking about this week's chapter, we're going to look at some of your comments from our discussion last week. And the first comes on the topic of Harry's trial, the time being changed. And this comes from Alan to Extreme on the main site. And it says, there was a small debate about whether or not the ministry actually sent an owl to Harry in regards to the change in his hearing. I was wondering if number 12 Grandma Place is both unplottable and the subject of a Fidelius charm, is it possible for the owl to deliver the letter? And following up on that comment, Rebecca the Ravenclaw said, Yep, I'm thinking you found a loophole. Also, the wording is important here. I believe Fudge says an owl was sent to you, so I think an owl could be sent to Grimald Place by someone who wasn't in on the secret, or at the very least an owl could be sent to a person in the home, perhaps not the location itself, but maybe it can't be received there. It's possible the owl was sent to Harry wherever he was at the time, like we see with Harry addressing letters simply too serious or even more vaguely to Snuffles, but maybe when the owl reached the place or near the place, it had to turn around and go back to the ministry. Hmm. Yeah, I like that it's more to the person rather than the place. And and again, there are two, two examples of that, right? When he just says in this to take it to serious. It's a good point. Yeah, but I mean, 
that would mean the letter would have to have some sort of tracker on it, right? To like follow the person. It's magic. No, we can't. We can't just say it's magic. There's there are explanations to everything, Sue. Sometimes yeah. it is magic. No, I mean that's that's true. Sometimes it is magic. Oh. I, I don't know. Um, I am. I guess in the. I think that they just sent it to Privet Drive and were like, eh, whatever. We know he's not going to get it. We don't care. So that's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. I mean, I'm sure that was definitely their attitude. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, I mean, I just think that we see a lot of examples, though, that. Um, letters are being sent and they know exactly where the person is. And the serious example that Rebecca brings up is really good, a really good point. So I'm really confounded by this. Yeah, but Hedwig is the only owl that's ever delivered to Sirius at Grimald Place, right? And Pig? Yeah, but he, he also delivered when Sirius was elsewhere, like in like in hiding. Right, but I think that's because it's Hedwig, Right. And not just any random owl. I don't think any random owl would be able to find Snuffles. Hedwig's maybe just a little bit above the average owl. Well, I mean, obviously. But no, I think it's because, like... (laughs) He's familiar with him. Yeah, yeah. And they're probably in contact or something. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they can communicate when Sirius is in dog form. Yeah, I think the big thing that we can probably all agree on is that however the Ministry sent it, they didn't really care if it got there at all. They just... Send it for the sake of saying they sent it and whatever, if Harry got it or not. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) All right. Well, the next comment comes on the topic of Mrs. Fig and being able to see the Dementors. And this comes from The Art of Spying on the main site. Although some of the podcast hosts and guests felt that perhaps Mrs. Fig as a squib could not see the Dementors, I must respectfully disagree. I think Mrs. Fig did see the Dementors. Fudge asks the question, and she indignantly says, yes, we can. Moreover, she was able to describe their attack on Harry and Dudley, plus describe how it felt. As to Fudge knowing about Umbridge sending the Dementors, I agree that he was not in the loop on that one. Umbridge specifically states that Fudge did not know she had sent the Dementors when she admits to being the one who sent them, and that she decided to take matters in her own hands and did so on her own in part because everyone was complaining about Harry, but no one was doing anything to silence him. Balderdash. Ba- what What part? I, I, I don't believe Mrs. Fig could see the Dementors. I think she fabricated that story to try and protect Harry. Oh my god, she, she absolutely can see them. I have no doubt that she can see him. No. See them. Mm, see, I am with Noah in this one, actually. I don't think she can see them either. I think Dumbledore coached her. I don't think that Dumbledore would put such a lie at risk as a witness for Harry. I think that she could feel them um, very much like Dudley could. And she's probably read about them and knows about yes. them and, yeah. has seen pi- and has seen pictures of them. So it's very knowledgeable. Man. I mean, as much as she can be. But I don't think she saw them. Exactly. I guess I'm, I'm on my own here, but I totally think she can see them. She got there too late. Like she couldn't. I mean, unless she saw them flying away. And I will. I will. I know it's the movie canon, but. At least in the movie, she's describing them, and then it doesn't feel real until she talks about what they feel like. And that's definitely the mm. sense in the, the courtroom. Yeah. And really, you know, we're kind of limited as to what we really know about squibs. You know, we don't really get a lot of information about them. And, and But I would I would really think that she wouldn't be able to see them, feel them for sure, because we know that that's, you know, in, in another book, you know, just how Dementors affect humans. Yeah. But, um... And seeing them, if Dumbledore did 
kind of coach her on her testimony. Obviously, it's with you know good intention. Um, but I'm, I, I, still I don't wonder. think she. I don't think he would have coached her. He would have just offered her up as a witness and kind of again let the magical universe kind of work itself out on his own as he does mm. sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. Did you guys see that the uh, somebody actually made the Squib website for us? Like you asked. Do you have that? the address? Because I wanted to. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> I I don't have it's the so address, funny. but it's on our Twitter. We re, we re, but we retweeted it. We did. Um. So go to our Twitter. It's at uh, MN, and you guys can see it there. It's great. It's really awesome. Yeah. That um. Her name is Lauren, and she uh she answered my call. She created a Squib website, and she's still developing it. She just sent me a message. Uh, not an hour ago, saying that she's developing different pages about um, what to expect if you think your child might be a squib, um, how to huh. associate them in society. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, claps to you. If Lauren. you have any ideas about this site or other projects, just email me. Or that that it's just really cool that I can just say something spontaneous and somebody actually like jumps on it because why not? It's a podcast. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. All right. Well, the final comment comes on the topic of Dumbledore being at the, tr- the trial. And this comes from Dust Charm on our forums. And it says, I love Dumbledore in this chapter. I don't like how he ignores Harry, but I know why he does. What I love about it is, like you said, Dumbledore is so passive aggressive and never outright blames any specific person for anything. It still makes the guilt known. He lets it be known that he thinks there is there has to be a guilty party within the ministry who sent the Dementors. I have always loved how calm Dumbledore is in these types of situations. He's on a whole other level than everyone else. To me, it's like his level of intelligence and reason is so far beyond everyone that he, that when people contradict him, he just lets it roll off his back. Passive aggressive. I don't know if that's the word I would use to describe Dumbledore. Hmm. Because that... Um, mm, mm, I, He's not very aggressive. No, I mean... He is kind of, I mean, he definitely is kind of passive-aggressive when he, like, um, indirectly implies that, well, I know no one from the ministry would blah, blah, blah. That, that might be the only example of that, though. I mean, I don't think in general that's how oh, he is. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think he is in general, but when dealing in, like, this formal setting, I think we definitely see it happening. Yeah, well, it's not like he can outright come out and say it. <sighs> He'll get thrown in jail. Right. Hmm. Maybe it's just sort of the terminology, not so much passive-aggressive as uh, just very witty, brilliant. Well, he also – he he lets Fudge's own words um, kind of – you know, he hangs himself by Dumbledore remaining so calm in the situation. Obviously, you see Fudge right. just getting more agitated and agitated and, you know, he's definitely in control of – the situation here with Harry. It is sad, though, as she said earlier in the comment, that, you know, how he ignores Harry. I, I was, when we all, you know, obviously we find out, you know, how hard that is for him to do, but, and why he does it, but it is hard to watch through this whole book. That's true. He explains it in my favorite chapter in the, enti- in the entire series. Oh, my God, right? My favorite chapter. That is, oh. like, still nine <sighs> months away, but I'm so excited to get there. <laughs> so yeah, I know. That was a good comment. I like that. Yep, I agree. Thought-provoking. And there are a lot of other great discussions on the main site and forums, including what if the ministry trial decision had gone the other way on Umbridge and Fudge and a lot more. So definitely head over to the main site and forums to check those out. Yeah, our comments every single week, just more and more people are commenting and having these amazing discussions. And we can't thank you guys enough for, you know, 
sharing it with your friends and getting the word out there because we have a lot of people reading Harry Potter around the world right now and it's really exciting. That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. Somebody new every day. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, now we're going to jump into our podcast question of the week responses from last week. Just to recap that question, it was, what does it take to produce a corporeal Patronus? In other words, why is it such a big deal? Does it require perhaps a certain degree of emotional intelligence? And that's why it's impressive Harry can create one at such a young age. So we got a ton of responses as usual. Our first one here comes from surprisingly swishy. It says, on the surface level, it seems contradictory that adolescents would be worse at the incantation than adults. Childhood is supposed to be a golden period, a happy and painless time. It seemed that school-age witches and wizards would have a large supply of happy memories to choose from and fewer experiences with heartache, loss, and other emotions Dementors would feed off. It would not only be easier for them to cast the Patronus, but the Dementors would have less effect anyway. Interestingly, it's the character who lacked a childhood who was able to cast one. So I thought that was a really interesting comment. I guess I'd never thought about it that way. What do you guys think? So why don't they teach Patronuses at an earlier age? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? I don't know. Well, you need to be able to focus. So, you know, really be able to focus. And I think it's just the nature of of kids that it's really hard to do. You know, there are emotions we see in Harry throughout this chapter. That, you know, it's almost, you have to remember that these are kids and, and for him to be able to, you know, keep his emotions, you know, you think it coming right down into that wand and out, it takes a, it takes a lot. And it's, and especially given what Harry's been through too, it's, it's amazing that he can do it, you know? Yeah, I I totally agree. I think the, the child might have that unbridled energy. But and the happiness, but without the focus and the recall of the memory, right. you can't cast the spell. Yeah, it's I good. think focus is the main thing. Is you need to be able to, with all one, you know, with all magic, to be able to focus into that wand is the whole thing. But are you saying that there's young kids out there who don't focus? No, um, but I think in general, it's yeah, in general, yeah. for kids to focus. Okay, I mean, sure, fair enough. Maybe I don't know if I, I, I maybe that's not. You don't think that's true, Kat? I mean, uh, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I kind of agree with this comment. You know, kids are more pure and more happy, and true. I don't know. Anyway, our next comment here comes from Saiyan Girl. It says, "The interesting thing is that this technique of conjuring a happy memory or the image of a safe place is actually taught to people with depression in therapy." They're taught to find an image or memory that can form a safeguard to the intrusion of the overwhelming darkness they experience on a daily basis. The Dementors always made me wonder if Jo herself had been taught this technique in therapy as well. She has mentioned in the past that she had counseling while writing the first book and again later on in the series. Which it that I thought that was a good thought, too, because, yeah, Jo's definitely mentioned that, um, you know, the Dementors uh, equate to... You know, depression for her. I would also ask Saiyan Girl if she thought the Kamehameha wave, in a way, was kind of like a Patronus. The the what? The um, it's uh, it's not important. It's sort of a, a Dragon Ball. Z <laughs> I was going to say, is this a Pokemon reference or something ridiculous like <laughs> it's that? It's Dragon Ball Z. Saiyan Girl knows. <laughs> so confused right now. I just thought that was a really cool comment. Um, yep. Our last one here is from Cassandra fourteen forty seven. It says. Given that the majority of Dumbledore's army manages to produce a corporeal Patronus, I tend to believe it doesn't require emotional maturity to any special extent. I definitely don't think it requires having gone through an emotionally arduous experience, since most of the DA hasn't had those experiences, as far as we know at least. I do wonder if the strength of the Patronus varies depending on your emotional fortitude. 
Harry has an especially strong Patronus. Could this be because of the strength needed to overcome the struggles in his life and still remain compassionate and friendly and hopeful? I don't mean to contradict my first statement. It's not that Harry understands slash controls his emotions better. It's that he is emotionally strong and capable of enduring more negative emotions than most other people. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with Cassandra's second point and not her first. Elaborate. Okay, you go first. I, I, I like what she said about the need to fighting one's own personal darkness and that being uh, sort of allowing you to really have a bigger emotional strength or be able to produce larger patronus. Patronuses. Patroni? <laughs> Patronuses, I think. Patronuses. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think, I don't know that she contradicts her first point, but I definitely jive more with her second point. I think she's more saying that you don't need to have gone through the experience to be able to do the corporeal Patronus, but um, Harry's experience of having had gone through more certainly helps him in that regard, and mm. um is why it is a little easier for him. And his is a little bit, as, as we know, is, is is more effective than the people he's teaching in Dumbledore's army. Right. You don't have to, but it suggests that if the Patronus is stronger for Harry's, and that's a big deal, that maybe the emotion, emotional intelligence is like the where the magic comes out of, or where the Patronus magic comes out of. So if it's, that's then we're sort of getting to the fundamentals of why this magic works in the first place. Yeah, I would agree with that. I definitely think that it, you know, it comes, obviously, I think a lot of magic comes from kind of your experiences and your emotion and your maturity Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. of the above. I I think it has less to do with how good you are at things, but kind of how in touch you are with yourself. Yeah, about that. Yeah. You know, so, but I mean, he has his, his father's Patronus. Which is super exciting. So I don't, I don't really know the significance of him having his father's Patronus. It, it's interesting, but he's very different from his father. Well, you guys know that since we're talking about fathers, Father's Day is coming up on June 15th, a little under a month away. Do you guys know what you're going to get your dad? Um, a gift, probably. I don't know. My father's incredibly hard to buy for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but you know, Caleb, what would... What would Harry have gotten his dad if his Harry was if uh, his dad was still alive? How did I know you were going to turn this into a question? I, um, <laughs> something affordable, uh, classy, and probably not at all magical because you know Harry's probably not the best gift giver in the world. <laughs> well, actually, I think I know the perfect gift Harry would have given his dad. Nothing other than a shaving kit from Harry's Quality Men's Shaving <laughs> Products. What's better than something that shares his name? And a father could use. And I have to say, I recently used Harry's products, and it's a pretty magical experience. I used my Harry set for the first time this past week, and I'm already a big fan of the Harry's shaving cream and razor. They gave me a closer and smoother shave than anything else I've used lately. And Harry's has a special Father's Day shaving set that comes with a chrome razor for dad, a child-sized razor toy, and a shave guide to share. You can even make the gift personal by engraving both handles with initials. Pricing is reasonable for a gift, $30 for the set, $45 with engraving. And you can even get free shipping if you order by June 4th. And expedited shipping is available through June 11th. So head over to harrys.com for this great gift and more. It has the namesake of the chosen one after all. Remember to use the promo code OPEN, O-P-E-N, to save $5 on your first purchase. And don't shave your head unless you want to look like Voldemort. <laughs> that is the important key. Good that point. is the key. 
That is the key. That's really cute. I think, I don't know, that's, that's just pretty cool. Maybe he would have gotten one of those for him, since it does share his name and all. I don't know. And now we're going to jump right into the chapter discussion. Chapter 9. The Woes of Mrs. Weasley. So the chapter begins with the courtroom scene ending. Harry has just been dismissed of all crimes against him. He is walking out. He meets a couple faces that we know. Uh, Minister Fudge, Dolores Umbridge, and then a Lucius Malfoy kind of doing some back uh, background dealings with Fudge that he walks by. Then we get back to Grimaud Place. There's a some jumping and dancing. We're going to talk about that a little later because Harry has just been freed. Then a great notice comes from Hogwarts that Ron and Hermione have been made prefects. Hooray, party. Harry is fuming, jealous, and then guilty of that jealousy. We're going to talk about that too. Then there's a big party because we need a little bit of happiness in Grimaud Place. Um, and then the Bogart scene where, of course, Molly will confront her deepest, darkest fear. So this is a loaded chapter. It's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, what do you all think of this chapter? I know, Sue, what, what did you think? Yeah, well, and again, I'm, I'm so grateful to be on this chapter, and I think f for two reasons. Um, one, for example, when Harry comes home, and I just, every time I read this or listen to it on the audiobook and the kids are, you know, dancing, he got off, he got off, I, you know, I can just imagine that scene, and it always makes me laugh every time. To go from that page, and we'll talk about it further, to, you know, four pages later, dealing with, you know, the woes of Mrs. Weasley, and I, I cry every time. And so for the for a book to be able to go, for me personally, those emotions in just a few pages from laughing out loud to crying is just really just a testament to this story, you know, really as a whole. And I like how in this one particular chapter you get that, you know, you it because this is a funny story. These kids are funny, and there's a lot of humor in it. And But we're also dealing with some really big issues and some, some scary stuff, you know, that's going on. And I think this chapter in particular demonstrates that really, really nicely, the humor and the, the sometimes real sadness, you know, that's comprised in these books. So, And there's just so much in it, too. Caleb, Cass? It's a long chapter. It no, is. I, I listen, I love the whole book, man. So, um, How long is this chapter? Like 17 pages, 20 pages? 27. Wow. Yeah. No, there's a lot into it. Um, and Harry's consciousness just uh, – I'm really tapped into his emotions mm. in this chapter. He just goes up and down. You know, Sometimes right. he's super happy. Other times he's super dark. Bipolar. <laughs> yes, completely. But you know he's also sixteen. You know he did have that thing with the uh, with the guy at the end of the. Actually, he's actually he's fifteen. Think? But that's cool. That's cool. He's fifteen. You also just turned hair like the thing with the guy. You know Cedric dying into like some like weird relationship. <laughs> you made it sound like <laughs> some like, weird that. relationship <laughs> that he had. I mean, yeah, he's uh, he's going through some really tough, really tough stuff. So I'm just gonna jump into my first uh, my first point, my first main point about this chapter that I like to call the Fred George Ginny complex. So this is something I've been thinking about. Ginny, as we know, or I think we talked about on the last episode, she's not as much of a character, obviously, as Ron and Hermione for Harry, so we don't see her as much. So I'm, I'm interested in where her parts come out. And for the, a lot of times, this isn't the first time, she is doing something along with Fred and George. And I wonder how much she is like Fred and George 
I mean, she is a, she seems to be this joker, but she's also kind of a peripheral character to Harry a little bit. She's not part of his inner circle with Ron and Hermione. Hmm. Uh, she's right outside where Fred and George probably are. So maybe that's why she finds herself there. But when, uh, when Harry comes back and they're saying, he got off, he got off. Ginny's right there with Fred and George. So I'm wondering for everybody here, how much is Ginny actually like them that we, we just don't see that part of her character or maybe her humor hasn't quite come out yet because she's still a little nervous. How much is Ginny like Fred George? Yeah. I think that she has their ballsy, brave side, um, but she has the I, the better sense, I would say, of um, – uh, I don't want to say Percy because he's a D-bag. Worst um, ever. One of the older brothers, certainly not Ron. Um he has very little sense. I think that she's. A, I think that she's a really good mix of all the boys. To be honest, yeah. And I brought it. I brought it up like several episodes ago that I think that the twins and Ginny are very close, and we don't really see that happen a lot. And I think this is um, a really good case of that happening. Yeah, agreed. I think the three of them are much closer than either of the parties are closer to Ron. Yeah. What do you mean by parties? You mean the other uh, siblings, the twins, and Ginny. They're closer with each other than either one of them are with Ron. Well, we do hear about them playing, you know, Quidditch a lot when they're at the borough. And, and I, I think, too, be, a girl being the only daughter, I mean, that is bound to affect, you know, your personality. Maybe she's, you know, more comfortable with guys because she's grown up with them. And I mean, we do hear, you know, we know that she has girlfriends at school and, you know, she doesn't usually sit with them on the Hogwarts Express and... I just want to see more of her jokey side. I feel like we don't get to see mm. it too much. Well, this is definitely a silly scene. And I think yeah. that it's, um, again, it always just cracks me up. And um, But I think, you know, we see her with Hermione sometimes too, though she, when they're... That, is, she, is she one of the, kind of one of the boys? Is she a tomboy? Ginny? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would so. Say so. And yet she's um, – so she's like kind of a tomboy but at the same time she's also sort of a player. You know, she, she, she dates. She, she meets, other, yeah. meets other people. Yeah. But again, I think she – growing up in a family of boys, when they're not in school, that's who she's around. You yeah. know, except for when you know, Hermione comes, which is usually every summer. Um, but so you know, I have a daughter and she's – I have two older boys and there's always boys, boys around and she's – to this day, she's still very comfortable talking with guys. She has girlfriends that she's, you know, they still can't really talk to guys, you know. And but she's very comfortable talking with, you know, boys. And I think that comes from just being around them. And Ginny's around a lot of times. She's the only girl. Yeah. Well, I, I have one. I have one more note that's sort of attached to this idea that it's like we don't have to go into it, but I'm going with my my Freudian Freudian theories a little bit. And what if? Uh, if Ginny is like Fred and George and Fred and George are like James Potter and um, Ginny looks like Lily, is does Harry effectively marry his parents in some way by going to Ginny? Does Ginny – is Ginny some sort of manifestation of his uh, his parents? And, and not in a creepy way but in like a, oh, I, I kind of resonate with, with you, Ginny, because you reflect kind of what was my past or where I came from. Yes, we all do that. It's kind of proven. Right. Women tend to you know look for – uh, well, I, if you're straight, I suppose, tend to look for, you know, men that emulate things that their father either had or things that their father didn't have. And the same for mm-hmm. guys with their mothers. Because it really is your first, I mean, for a girl, it's your first relationship with mm-hmm. the man, is your dad. 
And that's the thing, though, that she doesn't, Harry doesn't have that relationship with right. his mother. He has right. nothing to go on. So, like, to bring it back to Noah's original question, right. it would only be physical. That's where I'm, I'm a little that's a good point. Um, okay. perplexed about. I was, I was just interesting, you know, thinking about Ginny as potentially more related personality-wise to James as opposed to Lily because uh, – as this potential jokester, I guess. Right. Because Lily was really not that – she didn't like James mm-hmm. because he was too much of that at first. All right. So, you know, interesting stuff there and we've got a little bit more about Fred and George coming up. Uh, back to – here's another point. Harry's emotions in this chapter um, – I'm going to talk about it because we have another couple of scenes and sequences where Harry is talking to himself. And even at the end of the chapter, I I, I don't know if everyone picked up on it, but there's a portrait who talks to Harry like uh, the first side of insanity Mm. or madness is talking to yourself. And it's it's pretty freaky because he's sort of taking the portrait seriously. And as we know, obviously, Harry has a piece of somebody else's soul in his head. So I wonder, again, how much does Harry talk to this piece of soul – how much is it influencing his own inner voice? So I've, I've sort of picked out a couple quotes that I just want to put out there and then we let's have a discussion of do we think that this is the soul talking to him again or if it's just Harry himself? Uh, here's the first one. On page 157, uh, Harry is remembering what Dumbledore had been like to him in the courtroom and how he wished that he looked at him. I wished he'd talked to me or even looked at me. Uh, and then his scar burns and everyone's like, oh, Harry, what's wrong? And he says, oh, no, my... My scar is throbbing. But he immediately feels sort of guilty about that thought or that it would be childish so he doesn't voice it. But as we remember in Order of the Phoenix, uh, the – sorry, the, the movie, uh, there's this whole scene of look at me, look at me. And Harry's face is changing to Voldemort. So that that's of course movie canon. But I'm wondering how much of that is Voldemort's soul influencing and how much is that Harry's need? And then there's uh, – let me, let me do a couple more. When Hermione asks uh, – Harry, if she can borrow Hedwig to send a letter to her parents, she uh, Harry says, yeah, no problem, said Harry in that horrible, hearty voice that he that did not belong to him. Take her. So again, just looking at that line, it's about how literal you take it. Does that voice not belong to him because it's the Horcrux? Or is it because that's not his normal way of being? Again, it's, 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 it's mystical how she writes because there are two distinct ways you can really take it. Yeah. And the third one that I want to talk about is when Harry's talk, when Harry's thinking about Ron's uh, prefect badge and how he basically has a conversation in his head on page one sixty six, uh, go ahead and look at it. And there's a truthful voice inside his head saying that he did not, he would not normally expect this happening. So we, this isn't so far, and we've sort of seen stuff like this before in the books. But let's all weigh in here. How much of it is Voldemort's Horcrux, and how much of it is Harry's own mental state and his own? angsty, suffering, bipolar teenager. I'm going to go out on a limb and say a lot of it is Voldemort because I think this is the point where he's starting to realize that he can use Harry. Um, um, Just starting to realize um, because, you know, Harry has been having dreams about the door. So he's like activating it. Voldemort is activating his uh, his. I think he's testing it and seeing exactly what he can and can't do, how much he can influence Harry. Um, I've, yeah, that's exactly what I think. I, I think that... Harry, if he wasn't influenced by Voldemort, would probably care less if Ron got the the uh, prefect badge, you know. Um, so, quite honestly, mm-hmm. and it's specifically mentioned twice in this chapter that his his scar burned. I didn't realize that it happened right after. Was that actually in the courtroom? In that 
when he says, he look wished, at me. I wished he talked to me or even looked at me. Is that when the... He's talking about him? that's when he wishes Dumbledore looked at him. But no, he says that afterwards when he was talking about how Dumbledore was there and how Dumbledore got Yeah, this is right around when Fred and Jordan Jr. are saying he got off, he got off. So right. yeah. he should be happy in this moment. Right, because the scar... Again, she, you know, it's quoted twice that, that a scar burned. And I was wondering if... That's a question I had. What Do we know what Voldemort... What is he doing right now? Um... Hmm. I mean, Do we even know? He's building up his... He's just in hiding. He's just trying to figure out how to get the uh, prophecy. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's surrounded by some Death Eaters. He's saying, look, look, look what I can make Harry do now. I'm going to just think. He's just closing his eyes. Yes, yes, I, yes. <laughs> you can't see this, guys. You guys, you can't see this, but Harry's totally, really upset right now. I can see it. <laughs> so I'm not totally convinced that this is really all Voldemort. I, I think that... Um, Obvious, well, obviously, the scar hurting is him. But, and, um, you know, maybe the first point you brought up, Mo, no, I would be willing to say that that is at least somewhat attributed to Dumbledore or D- Dumbledore Voldemort. Because um, of, of the scar burning? Yeah. And I think mm. that that sort of sets his mood and mindset and, like, emotions for the next, like, couple of days. And that... It, that enhances the likelihood that he acts out in this way when Ron gets the prefect badge and he doesn't. Because I'm not, and I would not put it past Harry to be um, upset about it, and even under normal circumstances. I, I do agree with yeah, that. Because um, he, that be, otherwise, um, he wouldn't be having the internal struggle immediately like he does. So I think a lot of that is just regular Harry, but he's in a bad mood already because brother's been through some stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm not totally convinced it's all Voldemort, but I think it's definitely a contributing factor. And I think what's important is it's like the two, uh, well, it's like it's starting, we're starting to see the blurring of it. Like you can't really tell when it's happening. And I think that's what Joe Mm -hmm. does a really good job of writing. I think you had a, a good point though. With the the fact that the Horcrux burn could be an indication of when something's actually going on, and then maybe the time surrounding that uh, that that burn, that scar burning, there are there are like waves of issues, and maybe Voldemort has to push that button every so often to make sure that Harry is in a sensitive state. And if he didn't, Harry would have more control over his own emotions. Mm-hmm. But uh, but all hypothetical stuff anyway. And and I, I do think back to Book Seven where Ron has the locket around his neck. And it, mm. that works with his emotions. So this is sort of like the same thing with Harry, except it, there's not a locket on his chest. There's a Horcrux in his mind, in, in his own body, that he always has to struggle with. Right. And that Voldemort can control that. Right. You know, the locket was just, or any of the other, you know, that really affected them. But it was, this is a direct, you know, Connection. Voldemort is, yeah. Until it, arguably, it, until at the end of the, this book, where he, he sort of throws him off. Right. With the, with the love. Um, yeah. Yeah. Moving on, we have Ron the Prefect, which is a big deal. Of course, Hermione's a prefect too, but no one's really surprised at that at all, um, which is funny. But it's the fact that it's Ron, and there are many different reactions from everyone that I want to break down, and we can analyze them because that's always fun. So Molly's initial response is, let's buy you something. Let's buy you stuff. And I feel like she does this often. Okay, that's – She's like so – such a like mothering, you know, you've, you've done well, son. I'm going to award you with a with a, a monetary thing. And it's it's interesting that they're poor. 
too, that, that she often goes to money that, um, in her mind, the only way that you can validate buying stuff or things is when you've done well or you, you've really earned it. And that's probably a very healthy approach. Um, mm. But it, it's probably something that had to be developed too just because money is tight and their family is huge. That's a bigger deal for them. You know, yeah. you think of the Malfoys can just go out and buy a broom. I mean, this is a this is a big deal. And Ron, Ron's excited. He's over the yeah. hill. That, and I was actually surprised how quickly Ron – um, I mean, he was you know excited about obviously being a prefect, but he seemed to really change fairly quickly over to being more excited about getting a new broom. I mean, that was what he talked about at the dinner <laughs> table was more, more than yeah than him being a prefect. So um, I thought that was interesting that he you know was talking with Tonks about it. I think about his new broom and how excited and that she actually got him on and couldn't wait to open it up. And- well, well, Tonks too. Um, I, w- I was going to bring this up later, but to- uh, there's a distinct moment where Ginny is like looking up to Tonks or playing off of her and Tonks in a way is sort of like a grown-up Ginny in that she's also kind of one of the boys too. Mm. She's, she's fighting, she's feisty and, uh, yeah, I, I think yeah. they're, I right. think they're pretty similar. Um, but I'm going to have to disagree with you cause I don't think Molly's first instinct is for him to buy or is for her to buy Ron something. I think that she's overjoyed and overwhelmed and in shock. That's her first instinct. Um, All right, sorry. First instinct, wrong. Poor wording choice, yes, but it's poor. her direct. Um, but that's a tradition. You know, action, it's not I like guess. she's doing it just for Ron. And also, yeah. the reason Ron is so over, you know, overexcited about the broom far more than he is about being a prefect is because Ron um, wants he wants status. He wants people to know that he has nice things when he has nice things. And that's that's a huge part he of does. Ron's character, and that's you know why basically, uh, and there's I could go into this forever, but that's <laughs> why he focuses on the broomstick is because he has something nice, and he wants the entire world to know that he has something nice, and that makes him cooler and you know more desirable. Uh, I don't know if he wants the broom for people to think that he has a nice thing. I think he's genuinely excited to have oh. an awesome broom so that he can play Quidditch and stuff. Yeah, I was thinking of the Quidditch. Yeah. That's definitely true, but that's why he's more excited about the broomstick than being a prefect. Because people think prefects are daft and stupid and whatever. At least Fred and George do. But people think a broomstick, a new broomstick, is really cool. So... I think that's why because it is. That's, well, that's why he's talking about a broomstick more than he is about being a prefect. You know. Hmm. Hmm. I, but I, I think you're right, Kat. I think Ron definitely resents being the one to get all the hand me downs right. and he wants his own thing. Absolutely. And then there's Hermione, who has a very distinct um, expression. She blushes when she hears that Ron has been made a prefect. And this well, should, that's um, after she comes in assuming because she catches Harry holding the badge and assumes that right. he was going to get it. Which uh, which totally makes sense, but she is totally thrown off guard, and I, I feel like Ron earns so many points that day. I would have flipped out on Hermione had I been Ron. Oh, because like you you didn't think of me before that I could possibly do this? Or- yeah. It made me think of those moments they have like later in the series, like always the tone of surprise. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, yeah. then it would be, like, much more angry and not as much joking. Yeah, well, because they're on this weird precipice of their relationship, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, they're kind of slowly maybe thinking that maybe they kind of like each other, even though I know it kind of comes to a head in the next book. But, you know. And it's way more overt in the movies. It's movies, whatever. Uh, they right. play that up. 
movies or whatever they are. So, but I just thought it was a very sweet moment. It's a it's one of the few moments that Hermione has her foot in her mouth. Right, exactly. Very mm, rare. Yep, that's true. Mm. Uh, Fred and George's uh, response is sort of surprised. They did not expect it to be Ron and another another group that expected it to be Harry. But I thought they seemed a little bitter about it. Actually, um, I don't have the exact line, but they they start looking at Molly. You know, why don't you treat us as nicely as you do Ron or Percy? Look at Percy, what they've done. Of course, they didn't actually say any of this, but this is what I sort of felt underneath. And what? how do Fred and George see themselves in the family? Because Molly is very tough with them, you know, not for without good reason. They do blow up a lot of stuff. But are, is it possible that even though they think, you know, it's a prat, you have to be daft if you're a prefect, you're, you're this, this, and that, are they a little jealous maybe? Of um, I could maybe see it a little bit, but I think like, to your question of where they see themselves in their fa- in the family, I think they're very independent. They know that they're really capable, and they they already have their mindset beyond school, so they've already got their heads really locked in. Um, but but I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think anyone in that moment where you have been either in that moment or in the past, this is the case for the twins, have not like been recognized in a specific way and then someone close to you is it's like a hard pill to swallow and then you have to choose like how are you going to react to it i don't know if they're jealous of ron i think they're oh probably a little put aside because i think that they probably see themselves as better than ron and i think that more clever yeah more 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 clever, more uh, – um, I'm not sure exactly what the word is. I think that they just kind of see themselves as more evolved, more – just higher than Ron. And I think that maybe this hurts a little bit because l- Molly literally pushes, I think, Fred out of the way <laughs> yeah. to hug to hug Ron. And is literally That's everyone like, in the Boom. family. Right. Yeah, right. Who and are we, like, the next door neighbors? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think that they're jealous. I think that they're a little, yeah, just a little put out. A little, I'm not sure exactly well, have, what the word is. but that's a, that's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah. I have some specific thoughts just about, just about Fred and George and the relationship with Molly. Uh, I was reading uh, the wiki and someone suggests online that they were named after Gideon and Fabian who were – Maluizi's brothers, who we actually saw in the photograph that that uh, Moody shows Harry a little later on in this chapter, mm-hmm. and that suggests, for one thing, you know, they are her. Maybe she sees them as brothers, not so much children. For some reason, I mean, of course she's Molly, so I don't think she could totally do that. But that puts those two characters in a different space than her other children. I think she just named them because they were twins, and her brothers weren't the the were were her brothers twins. I can no, they weren't. Were they? Never yeah, mind. No, they are. Oh, they are okay. Couldn't remember if I was making that up or not. No, I, I think that the G and F thing has been in the family for many generations. I don't think oh, okay. Gideon and Fabian were the first ones. Um, but no, I would say that she, I don't think she sees them as her brothers more than her children. No. She treats them like a mother does, not like a sister. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's I – th- I just think it's interesting. I don't know quite what to make of it. And add on top of that, um, when we get into the Bogart sequence and we see the family, she sees – Fred and George together as, tw- as twins um, as opposed to one after the other. So she can't separate the two from her mind. And maybe that – I don't know if uh, – so you don't have twins, but maybe you know no. – does anyone know any mothers with twins? Do they also see their twin children as sort of the single entity? No, that Molly seems not to any of the twins that I know. Yeah, same. So uh, arguably Molly does that here and, and just in light of that, she seems to put them in, in a separate space than the, the other kids. 
Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't ever see a time where Molly really, like, individualizes them other than the two really horrible scenes where um, George gets really injured and then I'm not going to talk about the other, but, um, and, and that's, you know, obviously, um, a really like specific event. I think it would probably happen off scene. I think it's just, we don't happen to see it as we read because it's not part of the scene we see. Yeah. And I know we've discussed this before, but like, I feel like Molly doesn't have a lot of mama time with Fred and George because yeah. they because they have each other and they've always had each other and they have different interests and like Caleb said they're they're very ambitious and they have their mindset they know where they're going so they do their own yeah. thing um so I think Molly just doesn't know Fred and George as well as she knows her other children that's all and they, yeah they don't want to be babied yeah I mean yeah, a little bit of age I mean maybe they do a little bit but in a different way than Molly can provide I think they do and it's sad it's just so so sad yeah <laughs> One thing else, though, about Harry being um, gypped out of the prefect, I think it's really interesting that Joe chooses to have a really um, like firm character in Kingsley say that he would have made Harry a prefect because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just like, oh, well, Harry, you need to get over it. But she like leaves that last little like nugget that makes us think, well, you know, there are people who think that Harry should have been made a prefect. It's not just his own belief in thinking that he's better than Ron. I think that was a really interesting choice. Yeah, no, I actually agree. I actually, uh, I really love Kingsley. He's probably one of my favorite, like, ancillary characters. And I just, I'm, like, dying to know more about this guy. Like, I love him. And um, I just think Joe chooses to give him lines that, that kind of challenge the authority in the scene of that particular chapter or moment or whatever um this in this in this case being Dumbledore and I like that well I think I think Kingsley and Dumbledore they both reflect different kinds of authority right and that's that's my that's my point is that Joe throws him in there and is like oh but wait why you can think about it this way too don't just listen to Dumbledore like form your own opinion yeah take this word from Kingsley who we know who we respect and um you know look at it in a different way so maybe she always had it in the back of her mind as like this other authority figure like you guys are mentioning and he ends up becoming minister we know at the right. end of the series. Which so. is so freaking awesome. <laughs> but but on, at this, by the same token, if uh, let's say Dumbledore had made Harry a prefect and then sort of bolstered Harry up as this um, figure against the ministry, maybe Harry would have been open to some attack from the ministry and the Daily Prophet even more so than he already is. Probably so. Yeah. So maybe he was planning all that all along. That's a potential, I guess, argument, I guess. I have a feeling Dumbledore knew Harry was going to have a really tough year. And he's, he had a lot on his plate just from, again, what you know, what he went through the last book. I mean. And, and he regrets it at the end, I believe, he says. He does, yeah. in, again, in my favorite chapter of the entire series. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. And then we get into the bogart sequence uh first there's a party there's a there's a cool party in which harry sees a photograph and it's uh, it's the old order which should be a kind of hopeful moment but of course harry is not having it he's in a really bizarre mental state in this chapter but then he goes upstairs and he hears wailing and he realizes that uh, molly weasley is fighting a bogart and losing that fight and uh just a, just a first note about the bogart it's in a writing desk and what if um the Bogart in the chapter being in a writing desk is sort of Joe's uh, greatest fear, which is writer's block itself, not knowing what to say hmm. and being uh, 
misunderstood. Is I actually it, really like that. That's really interesting. Yeah, I do too. I mean, of, of all the things where a bog could hide that she chose to have it in a in a writing desk, I think is really cool. Is, yeah. Isn't this the um hmm. like the break between Goblet and Order? Isn't this the time where, where it was like two years or something like that? Like crazy long break. Yeah, and, it was and, the first and, long break. And she like felt really exhausted about it and was like overwhelmed. And so I feel like that's actually probably pretty legitimate. Yeah. yeah, you know it's her cheeky way of being like, "Ha you know, as Joe can only do. Is it an obligatory genius moment? It could be. <laughs> it could be an OGM. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry is watching Molly fight the, the Bogart, and it keeps changing from one Weasley child to the next. Interestingly, not Ginny. I, we don't we don't see a Ginny. We don't see a Charlie. And maybe because she, I guess she doesn't expect them to fight in the war as much. I Certainly she not got because interrupted. Oh, it would have continued. So. Or, so. or they were first. Yeah, true. Or she doesn't love them as much. No, or she just thinks that they're both so kick-ass that nothing would ever <laughs> happen to them. Or she sees Ginny as like a continuation of herself and she's not scared about herself. No, I don't see that. Okay. I can only spin a web of random possibilities. I know. Uh, I know. Um, interesting that Harry sees his own dead body on the floor and that's the moment where he says, please, please stop, Bob. <laughs> Mrs. Weasley, let me do it. Let me take over. Yeah, that's so creepy. I don't know. I just – I I always think about this if I were Harry standing there watching this moment. Yeah. Like to see myself dead <sighs> on the floor. I don't know. It's right? just – I couldn't handle it. Yeah, it's so Well, it was bizarre. that first second when he walked in. He saw – it was Ron that was And he was like, there. what? Right. And, wh- and then pretty quickly though, he he – but I thought pretty quickly he went, wait a minute. Okay, this isn't right. I just was with Ron. This couldn't be. Oh, it's, and very, it's re- very quick. Yeah. yeah, that he realized the situation. And um, yeah, that's. Oh. But this is this is Joe sort of playing with playing with death in a way. It's There's an element of humor here, uh, ironic humor, which is. And a ginormous foreshadowing. She says, you know, the entire family is in the order. It'd be a, a, a miracle if we all make it through. Which right. dun, is, dun, is, dun. That, is that foreshadowing, though? Whoops. Yeah, yeah I mean, it absolutely is. Why wouldn't it be? There's, I mean, there's going to be the war, but if one, I'm, I'm thinking, you're sort of talking about foreshadowing that there's going to be a general war, but maybe if there was just one person left out or something, then I'd be more. Well, look, we just we just had the scene with Moody showing the picture of the pre, you know, the initial original order, order yeah. of the Phoenix, and how many of those people, and you know, Moody, I think Moody's intention, he didn't. Harry took it. I can see how Harry would take it, how he did. I don't think, I think Moody meant it in a nice way, in his own way. Yeah, absolutely. But how many people out of that picture were dead in pretty explicit ways? I mean, they, one guy, they found just pieces of him. Some people they didn't find. Um, So you went from that scene. This is war now. I mean, this is getting to be. No, she's rightfully, she's rightfully scared. I'm not, I'm not saying she shouldn't, shouldn't be. I'm just very sensitive her with those terms. Her brothers were both killed in that. Yeah, but they fought. They fought like five Death Eaters. It was a valiant death. Well, they did, but they're still dead. Everybody's got to die, Sue. I know, but it's really sad. This part is really sad, Noah. Wow, I think you successfully shut him up. That doesn't happen often. 
Kat, I don't think it's foreshadowing, and I could talk to you about it later if you want. No, I don't want to talk about it later. We we'll talk about it. Now. I know you don't. <laughs> we can let the listeners talk about it. Yeah, okay. that's, there you go. Listeners, talk about it. Who's right? Vote Team Cat. <laughs> One last point about the Bogart. This Bogart is really messing with Molly Weasley. Um, how smart is this Bogart? Is it possible that the dark forces around Grimaud Place have like made it really more evil? than it normally would be and is making it do this to Molly with some really weird intelligence. Mm. I don't think so. No. Well, it was brought up, I think, um, a couple chapters ago that this, you know, this house had, has a lot of dark magic in it. In this room in particular, they, is this the room where they had the, um, where they found yep. the locket initially? It had the cabinet. Oh, wait, I'm not sure. Yes. They went on a whole... They went on a, a whole list of, you know, things that they, when they were trying to clean it out, you know, with all the doxies and everything. And they, the locket was just like in a, on a list of things that they found with the, the, um, music box and made everybody fall asleep until Ginny closed it. There was a whole bunch of items and the locket was just kind of thrown in there as a, you know, one of the things that they tried An to OGM. So you're saying it could be that H, that, that room. Does, do you guys know what room it is? It's the draw. Yes, it's this room. It's the drawing room. Yeah, it's that room. Yeah, so this is like the an evil energy is just room. like like a vortex of yeah. So I think it magic. it totally manipulated the Bogarts, making it act really mean to Molly. But we don't know how long the Bogarts been there. I'm pretty yeah. sure Molly says at one point that she thinks it moved in overnight. Hmm. So that doesn't mean that the you know the forces of the room didn't impact it. I don't think we can answer this. Well, I think. Molly's emotion. She just feels so helpless. And it's picking up on that? Yeah. I think it yeah, feeds, I think so. almost like a dementor, you know, can feed off of, um, you know, the, right. some of these negative emotions that this, the Bogart feeds off of fear. And if someone's, and she's been obviously holding this in, you know, she, she, I think she keeps, tries to keep a, you know, a brave face and you know oh you know and tries to keep everybody fed and happy and well one i I thought my question was how does the bogart choose which body to turn into is it based off of maybe molly gets a vision of the the child in question in her mind or does the bogart sort of anticipate what she's going to think i think it's her thought who she's thinking of. yeah i think so too Mm, i don't know i i think it's probably like digging into her subconscious somehow because she's not like um, purposefully thinking about the next person, I don't think, as, like, it keeps changing. Right, I don't think she has control. Yeah. I think that she's just so upset. So so I, it seems to be, you would anticipate. I don't think so, because, I mean, when Harry talks about fighting the Bogart in Prisoner, he says that he first thought of Voldemort, but then the Dementor popped into his head, and that's when the Bogart changed. Yeah. Um... So I'm going to... That would suggest there's some sort of mental change when she's seeing one of her dead children that she's thinking yeah, about Yeah, exactly. Child. I think she's like, oh, my God, look, it's Ron. And then, oh, but what about Ginny? Or, oh, my right. God, oh, what yeah, about... Yeah. Oh, my God, what about Fred and George? Like, I think that she, yeah. I think she's just reeling and, like, over and over and over and over and over thinking about it. Um, yeah, that's that's what I think. And her emotions, and she just can't focus, which is, again, we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. so important to be able to, you know, be able to do the... Right. The appropriate spell, you know, right. you have to be able to focus. And she was just so upset. Right. I still think there's something about that room, but all right. Well, I think the room is part of it. Yeah, it's entirely yeah. possible. Cool. 
All right, that's all. That's all I have for the chapter. But definitely one of my fave chapters of my fave book that I Kat and I agree with. Yeah. On that is that this book is. I also agree with that. I am not the next door neighbor. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's right. That's that a great line. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna actually stay on Bogarts for the podcast question of the week this week, and I think probably everybody might possibly know what it is because we've t- I think we've touched on it a few times before, but I have a little bit of a twist for it. So this is it. Obviously, this is the chapter where Moody sees the Bogart. He looks and he says, "Yep, that's definitely a Bogart." What exactly does he see? But okay, there's kind of a secondary question here. Also, Molly goes in there to try and get rid of the Bogart, and as we just discussed, she sees all of her dead children and her dead husband and is fretting over this war. What would Molly's Bogart be if the Wizarding World wasn't kind of on the doorstep of a war? I'm really curious about this, really Mm -hmm. excited to see what you guys think. And to clarify, you mean what Moody saw, not because it's his fear, but, like, what is, or are you asking that possibly, or, like, what the Bogart looks like No, like, like, legit what it looks like. Like, what is it? Before it transforms. Before it transforms. Yep. Yep. So, it should be a good one. Hey, if you want to throw in there what you think Moody's Bogart is, too, let's do it. Let's, what is that? We'll just do three little questions. Um, Little crouch now. Little, that's right, a little crouch. <laughs> that's a good answer. I mean, it, it very well might be, right? Um, but yeah, so you guys know where to answer that. It's at alohamora.mugglenet.com um, under the podcast question of the week thread. So do it. Thanks. Do it. Thanks. Do it. Um, yeah, we're getting a lot of comments on that main site. Uh, people seem to have – we still have comments in the forums, but tons and tons on that main site just underneath posts, like hundreds. So we love reading all of them. Please continue to – you know, debate, go back and forth, and we'll get as many of them on the show as we can. We love it. Yeah, we do. And and we hope that you guys are enjoying the format more of the show. Um, we've been working on it a lot. So give us feedback on that, too. Um, if you, you know, let us know if you think it's working, not working, all of that. We love to hear that. We can, it only helps make the show better for us and for you. So let us know. And uh, I'd like to thank Sue for coming on the show. Well, it has been my pleasure. I don't get that much of a chance to converse about Harry Potter. So this is a real treat and I hope I did okay. Yeah, I mean I met I met Sue at LeakyCon uh, – not LeakyCon, sorry, at MistyCon. Um, we connected over Butterbeer. We're friends and I actually drove uh, drove to Massachusetts. To, he did. Well, I'm, I'm meeting my friend too but we're sitting next to each other doing this recording. So mm-hmm. Thank you very much. But if I can just say, I've been a fan since day one. I've never missed an episode, so but I never in my wildest dreams thought I would ever be a guest. And again, I, I hope I was able to, to hold up. And it's not something I, I don't have a lot of people in my life that I can, again, converse about Harry Potter with. So this is, I hope I was able to be okay. And it is quite a treat to be on You're great. Show. You're great. I think yep. everybody listening will agree you did an excellent job. So No doubt. Well, yeah. Harry Potter is really, really special to me and... And again, I never miss a podcast, and I like it's out that it's out earlier on Saturdays now, <laughs> and um, so it's great. You guys do a great job, and it's so so vital because as you talked about earlier, there's a new person every day that picks up a Harry Potter book, and mm-hmm. it's you guys, it's MuggleNet, but it's you guys that come up with the only ones that are putting out new shows now, and there's always people that are going to be starting Harry Potter at the beginning, and it's important that this. 
it's going to be it's an ongoing. It's ongoing, and the show is online, so it's there. Yeah, for everybody. Forever. You're pulling out my Slytherin side, so stop, stop flattering me. <laughs> You're going to give me a big head. <laughs> Well, I knew it. That is very kind to say. So thank you very much. And if you would like to be on the show like Sue, you can head over to our website and check out the Be On The Show page, which is on alohamora.mugglenet.com. And the only thing you need is a set of Apple headphones or something comparable, and you're all set. No fancy equipment needed. And in the meantime, if you just want to stay in touch with us, you know, send us a message or if you make a website for us, you know, something super cool like that. Um, you can find us on Twitter at MN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our phone number is 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. Subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We really do love reading those. Um, they're really hilarious, especially when you pick on Micah. Um, so those are really funny. Yeah, yeah. Sue was saying that somebody somebody picked on Micah again that, that yeah. continuously. Yeah, uh, it's okay. It's funny. We like it. Micah likes it too. It's fine. I know he does. Um, <laughs> and you can follow us on Snapchat, MN underscore Lohamora. And of course, our audio boo, which is free no matter where you live, anywhere in the world, an island, you could live in Alaska, and a boat in the middle of the ocean. As long as you have internet and a microphone, you can leave us a voicemail. Um, and that's right on alohamora.mugglenet.com. And, of course, we have the Alohomora store. There are tons of shirts and coffee mugs and lots of other stuff. But today we really want to ask you, what do you want in the store? What are some ideas for things that you would like us to make or produce? Because we could then get them to you um, through some sort of monetary means. So please, give us just give us some feedback. Give us some comments. Um, and if you like creating websites like uh, Lauren did, just uh, really go to that Squib site. We're going to make a note about it on the show notes for this episode. I think it's just hilariously awesome. And just the more collaborative projects uh, the Alohomora, you know, fans can produce, you know, will help you. Yeah, that's just like, that's really special. Oh, by the way, there is a sale, 15% off June 3rd to June 10th. Make sure to use the, cur- the code MYSHIRT2014. That's in the Alohomora store. Um, and Kat, is that on every shirt or everything in the store? That is on, um, it's off t-shirts, so 15% off t-shirts. All right. So that's a cool deal. So make sure to head over to our store and do that. We also have the ringtones that are free and available on the website. And don't forget our smartphone app, which is available seemingly worldwide. Prices vary. It has things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and much more. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us on Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Noah Fried. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 86 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. That was the most normal Open the Dumbledore you've ever known. Could you move Doggy upstairs?
my god. Sue was eaten by a blast-ended screwed. <laughs> <laughs>